Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We're first airing this show on the heels of a rather shocking general election, and so we thought it only appropriate to do a show about politics and literature. What makes a good political novel? Can a writer sustain a narrative while still making a coherent political point? And if David Cameron wrote a novel, what would it be about? I dread to think. Well, we'll answer some of these questions on the show today, aided by our guest, the novelist and former BBC reporter, Terry Stiasny, whose first novel, Acts of Omission, was published last year and has just come out in paperback. We'll also be discussing the theme and giving book recommendations. But first, our interview. Octavia, can you do the honours? Sure thing. Um, Terry Stiasny is a former BBC journalist, and during her career at the Beeb, she worked in Berlin and Brussels covered politics in Westminster and spent many years reporting for Radio 4 news programmes from around the UK and abroad. Her first novel, Acts of Omission, is set in the political world of London in the late 90s and is about the loss of a single confidential disc and the ripples it makes in the lives of a reporter, a politician and the agent who lost it. Here's Terry. Terry Stiasny, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Um, we've asked you to start with a reading, so could you set it up for us, please? Yes, of course. Um, well, I'm going to be reading from uh, fairly early on in the book, uh, one of the main characters in the book, Mark Lucas, who is a government minister, and he works in the Foreign Office. And at this point in the book, he's on a trip to Berlin, and he's being shown around the new British embassy which at the time the book is set is still a building site and he's being given the official guided tour by the British ambassador who is a chap called Sir Malcolm Caldwell. Sir Malcolm Caldwell looked wrong in a yellow safety helmet. It made him conspicuous, as did the fluorescent high visibility vest over his grey chalk striped suit. Although he was now a man with a public face, who was indeed the public face of his country, he was someone who had spent much of his career in back rooms and was still uncomfortable drawing attention to himself. He wore his grey hair slightly long, the fact of its grazing his shirt collar a tiny rebellion. As the new embassy was a building site, Mark had been asked with apologetic politeness to put on a helmet and a vest. He and the ambassador paused for photographs in what would become the building's lobby. Sir Malcolm looked around at the internal courtyard, which the architect's plans showed full of foliage and artwork, with a tree growing in the centre and smart people chatting to each other. There would be brightly coloured shapes jutting from the walls over the street, purple ovals and blue triangles, the building wearing its own high visibility markings. Apparently this is all about being open to the outside world, he began. One of my illustrious predecessors before the last war thought the building we had here was too dark and cramped. They walked deeper into the shell of the future embassy and climbed the stairs to a part that would be away from public view. Though I have to say, if he'd spent more time realising how bloody terrible everything was that was going on around him here, and less worrying about whether he had a sunlit office, then we might not have had to rebuild it from a hole in the ground 60 years later. Sir Malcolm stopped to check that no one was reading his lips, that no camera would accidentally record his words. To me, he whispered to Mark, it looks like one of those sorting boxes my grandchildren play with, you know, the ones with the holes that shapes have to fit into. Mark laughed, seeing what he meant. Though it's in a rather good location, he replied, avoiding agreeing out loud. Oh yes, couldn't ask for better. It's practically part of the Hotel Adlon. If you'd asked me 20 years ago whether all this would ever happen, I'd have laughed at you. 
Sir Malcolm looked through what would become an internal window, but was now a gaping hole at the scaffolding and at the builders working on it. When did you first come to Berlin? Mark asked. He could tell Sir Malcolm's history came from more than just a briefing note. The first time was the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, before the wall. We were based out by the old Olympic Stadium, a long way west of here. Then, much later, the late 70s, I seem to end up here every 20 years or so. What was it like then? Rather grim, Sir Malcolm said. It seemed as though it would last forever in those days. Lots of drinking with some very unpleasant Russians. One had to pour the vodka shots into the pot plants so that they ended up under the table before you did. What was your role, exactly? Mark realised it was the kind of question one never asked, or had answered straight. But perhaps, as a minister, he'd get a better response than he once might have done. Were you... Sir Malcolm knew perfectly well what he meant. Oh, well, he shrugged. Our friends the Russians certainly thought so. Louisa and Jeremy were about to rush them on through the rest of the building, but Sir Malcolm had been prompted to remind Mark of something that wasn't for their ears. He gestured them away with a quick flip of the hand. They, the Germans, will want to talk to you about some of the unfinished business from then. Around ten years ago, when the wall came down, we seem to have acquired some of the old files. Don't ask me how. Mark didn't. They're the indices to the list of agents who were working for the Stasi in the West. They've been honoured us to give them back, truth and reconciliation and that sort of thing. Well, we'd really rather not. But surely we should, shouldn't we? Mark had read something about this. It was filed under one of the coloured tabs in Louise's briefing folder, the ring binder that she carried with her everywhere, so that she could flick through and give Mark the correct answer at any moment. Each coloured tab indicated a subject, a question Mark might be asked, and she provided him with the expected, approved answer. Sir Malcolm exhaled disapproval. Oh, dear. You're an advocate of freedom of information, then. It's one of the things I promised to do, Mark replied, when I was elected. It was one of the issues that had made him cross the line, from journalistic observer to participant. He had found himself campaigning, signing letters, getting involved. Mark wanted to know things. He wanted other people to have the right to know things. Eventually, it had seemed that the only way to do that was to put himself out there and try to get elected. Though Mark sometimes wondered what the, how much the people who voted for him had really cared, how much they really wanted to know about the organisations that ran their lives. It was the answer Sir Malcolm had been expecting. Yes, I suppose you did. I'm sure you'll realise, Minister, as you seem rather well up on the place, that there was a great deal of unpleasantness on all sides, and it's not necessarily best to be reminded of it all now. Sometimes what we don't know hurts us all rather less. Thank you, Terry. That uh, brilliantly sets up the sort of central conflict of the book, which are these Stasi files that the Brits have got a hold of and the Germans want back. Um, and I think also some of the central themes of the book, which is what goes on in public versus private, how much the public really needs to know what freedom of speech means and, and what truth really does and the sort of human consequences of truth, So, which w we will get into later. <laughs> but for now, I just wanted to ask, um, the novel has three main characters. There is um, Mark Lucas, who we just met, who is the newly elected foreign minister um, and the person who is held responsible for the disappearance of these files. There's the MI6 agent who loses the files, and, um, and then there's a journalist who is one of the people who finds the files and has to decide what to do with them. So why did you choose these three perspectives um, for the novel? Um, I think I wanted one of the main characters to be a politician. And when I was in the process of writing the book, someone actually said to me, well, you, you can't have a book with a sympathetic politician in it. That'll never work. And, so, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to try, because I th I, what I wanted to do was 
show you the human being. You know, politicians aren't all just you know, out for their own ends, that this is a person who is conflicted and he's trying to do the right thing and quite often he fails at it. Um, a journalist, Anna, I suppose probably the closest character to myself, obviously I came from a journalistic background and I think journalists help stories along because you've got someone asking questions, someone asked trying to find out what has happened and why and it's always a good way in and she as well is quite naive and she doesn't really realise what she's stumbled across until she falls flat on her nose effectively. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Alex who's the, the agent, I, he was really the first character that came to me in my mind when I came up with the idea for the book which was a very long time ago. There were stories in the late 90s, and I remember reading about hapless spies who had left their laptops on the train or in the taxi after a night out drinking. And I remember thinking, what happens to that poor guy who's come back from the bar who doesn't remember what happened to his laptop, whose career is presumably destroyed? And I just sort of wanted to see these people from the inside in a way that you don't often get to do as a journalist. Mm. Yeah, and, and that brings us to the next question, actually, which is, you know, as you said, you had a career as a journalist at the BBC, and did this book arise partly from this desire, a desire to explore the world behind what you were presented as, you know, as your journalist, in your journalistic career? Yes, very much so. I mean, as, you, as I said, the, there are a few original stories that did come from real life. I mean, there were... What were the stories? The, well, there was the one, it wasn't one that I covered, of laptops being lost by agents and you know it seemed to it seemed to happen all the time every few weeks there seemed to be another story like that um, and also I worked in Berlin for the BBC at around the time that the book is set and I did actually go to the British Embassy as it was being built and I was lucky enough to go to the German Parliament building when they moved into the Reichstag and see the construction of all this and one of the stories that we covered then was Germans asking for files back. We went to the old Stasi Museum and saw them trying to piece these files together. And it was really just a, a what-if question, because at the time, Britain had said, no, no, we don't want to give these files back. And I you know, left that story. I never really followed it up. And when I came to write the book, I thought, well, did, did we ever find out what happened to that? And so I just thought, well, what if? Here's my own fictional version of what might have happened and what might have been in the files. Do you know what actually happened with the files? I don't. <laughs> as far as I know, and as far as I've checked, which is probably not all that far, uh, Britain still has their copies, you know, unless they've been mislaid somewhere. Um, I know that the US had some files and they did decide to return them to the German government, where everybody in Germany who has a Stasi file on them has the right to go and, and find out what it says. And people have said to me, it's the process still takes a very, very long time. Uh, so you apply for your file and you get it, you know, several years later and you get to find out what people said about you. And I just think it's very interesting that, you know, obviously people in the formula, former communist countries have to deal with the past in that way and it's put in front of them and they deal with what friends and neighbours and colleagues might have said. And we in the West are lucky enough not to have to know what people were saying about us, what we might have done under those circumstances. Um, you, you talked about writing a relatable politician. I think Mark is a relatable politician. He wants to do the right thing. He's run on a platform of freedom of speech and openness. Um, and the novel is in part about the human consequences of disgrace and scandal, uh, which seems to have become an integral part of our political system where we have an election going on right now and every day there seems to be some mini scandal that 
then has to be covered over. Was that something that bothered you when you were a politician, or was it something you wanted to dig into? Well, I was more a political I mean, journalist. Sorry, not a politician. So, <laughs> I, no, I wasn't, but I do. I know quite a Reporters. few people who who have gone into politics. Um, but I did find myself at the time. You know, sort of challenging people or standing outside people's houses on the doorstep, sort of you know knocking on their door and kind of demanding to know what they had done you know, years before or months before. And yes, I do think, as Mark tries to think in the book until it all comes a bit too close to home, uh, that people should be open, that people should, uh, politicians should be accountable. Um, I think the difficult thing you see with you know, if now it's very hard work being a politician and your whole past is gone over. So what we saw during the election campaign was that everything, what you look like as a student, your dreadful haircut as a student, the clubs you might have joined as a student are gone over. And I think it puts people off. It would certainly put me off going to, into politics. And you know, I know of people that I knew at that time, back in the day, uh, whose lives have been gone over and just people get exhausted they get worn out it's it's hard and you know yeah. yes they don't always do the right thing and they should be held to account for that but it is a hard job it is and it's weird that we almost expect our politicians to be above human foibles and be you know more than human or better than human when actually we wouldn't if they really were that way we wouldn't trust them <laughs> either so it's kind of a, a catch-22 um yeah, and, and this, this novel obviously is asking questions about freedom of information. And like you said, when people's pasts get raked over, we find out all kinds of things about them that maybe are not, um, they're not necessary to be known, right? Um, and moral conflicts come up all the time. Do, do you ever have that kind of moral conflict in your career as a BBC journalist? I think there were times, I wouldn't say I ever had a story as as good as Anna did, or as she, you know, as she stumbles across. Um, I think sometimes you did see the human side of things. And I think what I tried to put in the book was some of the things that I think more when, when I was a journalist, probably less so now, because so much more is public. There's everything's on Twitter, everything's on social media, things are, uh, the whole process is more exposed. But I think there were times when we certainly tried to draw a line and say, this is too personal or this is not something. I think particularly when you got stories that involved, say, a politician's children or something like that, and you just said, look, they didn't go into politics. You know, the kids didn't go into politics. Their families may have done. And that was kind of the point at which you stopped. But you know, you're still standing at someone's, outside someone's house at six o'clock in the morning, waiting for them to come out and wondering whether, you know, wondering if they're going to talk to you or not. And, you know, sometimes that does feel strange because it's a strange thing to do. There are great scenes in the book. Um, mm. Just the feeling, you imagine what it's like to feel, to wake up and look outside your window and see people gathered around and knowing that you have to confront that. Um, it really brings that home, I think. Um, because I think sometimes we don't think of politicians as people. Um, it's also incredibly topical, this novel, um, and it made me think of people like Julian Assange or Edward Snowden. Um, in this novel, it, there, it's more about perhaps there's not a definite whistleblower, but it's still about freedom of information coming out and what the costs of that are. Um, were you thinking about those things that are happening today while you were writing this? Um, I should mention that this is set in the late 90s, so it is in the historical past. It is set in the historical past, and partly one of the reasons I put it that far back was I wanted to be just on the cusp of 
the internet age and things changing. But strangely enough, the whole um, Julian Assange case and the Edward Snowden um, actually happened after I'd written the book. And really? actually has happened as I, as I had been uh, sending it out to, to agents and publishers. And it, but it did suddenly strike a chord, and particularly when we found out things like that Angela Merkel had her own uh, phone conversations listened to yes. and, and stories like that. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is, yeah. If I was wondering whether people would think that this is too close to the Cold War, that things have moved on so much now that it doesn't have a resonance. But then it did start to acquire one, which was mm. lucky. Yeah, and, and is that what drew you to, to writing about that particular time period? I think partly it was obviously when the, I had the original idea for a book and I'd done not really nothing about it. I'd written little scribbles in notebooks that I carried around or when I was on a long train journey, I'd write the odd snippet here and there. Um, but I think I wanted to set it in a time where the Cold War was only 10 years ago, when it was before 9-11 mm. and before so, so many of our preoccupations had changed. And I wanted to show, I suppose, that some of those issues hadn't really gone away, even though they might have been overlaid now with, with other things. And in particularly, the way we get information has changed so much. I mean, the whole book centers on missing computer disks, and the journalists have to go and look things up in phone books. And it's partly that I just wanted to capture that, was when I was starting out as a journalist, that was what it was like. You didn't ha we didn't have internet in the office. We yeah. barely had a mobile phone. And I kind of wanted to go back to that because I thought it was more fun as a kind of a chase thing rather than go, and they looked for somebody and they Googled them and found them. <laughs> yeah. No, okay, it's, a you know. great, it's a really great plot device. And actually, there were a, a few nostalgic touches that brought me back to my childhood. Like at one point, a character picks up the landline and recites the phone number back, like 369. And I remember my parents used to do that. And it used to happen when I called. For, it was just, it was because I, you know, I grew up in the 90s. Um, it was a, it was a lovely kind of window back onto that time. And you do realize when you go, when you're reading any novel or any, any piece of writing that's set in that period, how different it was in terms of the access to information. Um, and yeah, disks, lost disks. The inventions of cell phones has completely wiped out a lot of, um, I think somebody said this the other day, Seinfeld couldn't exist now because we have cell phones because every sort of plot point revolved around people missing each other or like leaving an answering machine message or, um, but uh, one of the things that you were talking about details and I think um, this book felt so well researched, I think in part because it's a life that you've lived as a reporter, not a politician. Um, <laughs> um, but one of um, our favorites that we were talking about after we'd both read it was um, the jars with the sense of people. Um, is that true? That That's is true. The, the, that so is the Stas used to keep jars with sense of people in case. It's, it's like the most Doctor Who detail ever. Mm. <laughs> it is have. really bizarre, but yeah. I remember seeing it when we went uh, to film in the Stasi Museum and a, a couple of other books, uh, non-fiction books, that are very um, they're great on this subject, like Anna Funder's Stasi Land and Timothy Garton Ash's book, The File, they talk about oh, okay. this. And I remember seeing people trying to piece back together files that had been shredded, and you just thought this job will go on for, it's phenomenal. for years and years. And yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. It's like it? a Borges labyrinth or something, isn't it? It's, it's crazy to think of. Um, yeah, and I mean, e East Germany, 
it's not, that's a historical period that to my shame, I don't know a huge amount about the Cold War. I, I kind of knew a lot more about the Second World War, the way that I was, when I went to school, what we were focusing on a history. Um, and it, it's, a, it's kind of amazing to read about it I, I, and where the boundaries were of East Germany and things like that. Did you spend a lot of time traveling around that part of the... We did quite a lot because, um, because I was there in 1998-99 so it was coming up not only was the the German government was moving from Bonn to Berlin um, and so we were moving offices from Bonn to Berlin and Berlin was just is a fantastic city to, to live and work in um, but it was also the 10th anniversary of the wall coming down so we did spend quite a lot of our time traveling to places in the former east and interviewing people um, about their memories um, and there's one line that a character says later on in the book that does come from a memory that I had of interviewing someone who said, you know, I'd never seen the tide go in and out because she'd lived on the Baltic. And she said, once the wall came down, I could go to a place where the tides came in and out. And I just thought that was you know, amazing to me. And I remember my colleagues and I interviewed Marcus Wolf, who was the head of the Stasi's, the sort of their foreign service, you know, the people that sent spies to go in the West. And I just remember his, he had what was a luxurious flat for East Germany. Um, but he remember just his wariness. And you could tell he was a man who'd been a spy for years and years. And he still liked to kind of sit with his back towards the wall. And he didn't, he didn't like being out in public places. Because, and there was just that kind of atmosphere. And you suddenly thought, hey, it wasn't that long ago yeah. at that point. It is now. And the book is in part about the police state of East Germany and, and rectifying that terrible history and, and you make clear that it was very terrible and um, uh, Mark Lucas's father I think is a representation of someone who was very harmed by that regime and never really is able to get away from it um, but I think what you're trying to suggest in the novel partially is that uh, right and wrong isn't always obvious and the British government is a lot closer to the East German totalitarian totalitarian state than they might like to think. I mean, the, the, this idea of needing to keep secrets. Um. I, I, w I certainly wouldn't go as far as saying, you know, it's close to totalitarian state. I mean, we're lucky enough that we've got, you know, yes. we can choose. <laughs> we, have, we had a whole election campaign. We get to choose who runs things. But yes, there is a tendency towards secrecy in the government. You, you know, you have the Official Secrets Act. You have, uh, although we are now supposed to have greater access to information, it's still hard to ask the right questions that get the answer that you would want, that gets you know documents to be forthcoming. And I think you find we're still finding in the UK instances of where whole histories have not been put in the public domain. They found recently mm -hmm. loads and loads of boxes of Foreign Office files from the colonial era that had been literally, I think, kept under some stairs in a country house that belonged to one of the the government agencies and they suddenly went suddenly people asked for them they said oh look look we've, we've just found these wow. we had a bit of a clear out and we found these under the stairs so there are things there that you know that we don't know and yes perhaps we should know but I think one of the things the book is trying to say is that that knowledge brings conflicts with it and trying to reconcile what happened in the past and the reasons for people's decisions is complicated. Yeah, and that whole idea that you know democracy is the least worst option <laughs> rather than mm. the best, you know? Um, and uh, Mark Lucas's father quotes, I'm gonna read the quote, the Kant quote, because I love it and I think it's so um, appropriate, which is, out of such crooked timber as humanity, no completely straight thing can ever be made. Um, 
which is so vital to the, to the whole plot of the novel, but also kind of looking at politics now and what we're doing is these systems are made out of human beings and human beings are fallible and will disappoint us. And, you know, this idea of kind of this, the philosophical question of is there ever a right thing to do um, is an impossible one to answer, really, isn't, isn't it? In terms of, you know, the information that you make public and that you keep private. Um, do you think there's an answer to that? Do you think there is ever a clearly right thing to do? <laughs> Big philosophical <laughs> question for it's you. It's a massive question. Um, <laughs> what are you doing to her, Octavia? <laughs> I think that you just got to work with that. Poor You've got woman. to work with the, the fact that human beings are fallible and try and, I suppose, if I'm being idealistic, try and create a system that allows people, I don't know, allows people not to be as, as far as is possible or recognises people's people's flaws and tries to put a, a good framework in place. Yeah. Yeah. Just as well I'm not a politician. <laughs> I would have to have a better answer. I don't know, maybe you should be. No, that's, that's a pretty good answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> um, one of the themes in the book is also historical change. Um, do you think we as a society are, are too quick to forget? I think that ties into this idea of truth as well. I think... Perhaps we are. I think we pick the bits of history that we remember, and we you know, we have to create stories about history the same as we create stories in in novels. And um, I think it's quite easy sitting in Britain to think that some of these things don't affect us. And I suppose one of the things I was trying to do was to say that we are um, we are affected by the world around us by people from different countries. I mean, there was a great quote uh, which I didn't actually use uh, as an epigraph for the book but uh, it was a speech that John F. Kennedy made in Berlin and he said um, you live in a defended I island of freedom now I've forgotten the end of it but you know and it was a his idea it was in a, an island but he was echoing that John Donne that you are a part of the whole so you know the island is a part of a part of the whole. Mm -hmm. um, this novel is I mean really classified as a political thriller uh, which and I wanted to know if you could talk a bit about how you structured the book to keep it suspenseful, because it's very suspenseful. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite difficult to say how I did it. I, it's a good, I, that's another question I haven't really got a, a very clear answer to, but I think uh, we just, just, I suppose by not knowing, you know, the characters, are, some of them are fairly cagey mm. about, about what they do and don't know. Well, it and it fits well with your theme, doesn't it? This kind of revealing information in little bits as we go along, you know? Mm. And it, like you say, that the, the ignorance of the characters at different stages, we mirror it. But it, I think you did it very successfully, so <laughs> whatever you. you're doing, keep at it. Yeah, and along those lines, I think what you're very good at is um, showing what characters say and project versus what they think inside of their heads. You use the, uh, the third-person part. What's it called? Free and direct style? Very well. Um, there's my college course coming back <laughs> for you. Um, and I, I loved that. I love, there's this one point where Mark decided not to admit that he often felt the same. So you're, th there's always these asides about what people are projecting versus what they're thinking. Um, and I, could you talk a bit about that? Because that was one of my favorite things about this novel. I think that probably also comes from journalism as well and it's that switch between on the record and off the record mm -hmm. I can't count the number of times I would have sat down with someone and done an interview like this and they'll be saying one thing when you're chatting beforehand 
you switch a tape on and record it and something completely different comes out. And so you know that there's that gulf between the two things. And I suppose I was trying to convey that in a way. It's quite Shakespearean as well, isn't it? Like the, then stepping to the front of the stage, as it mm. were, to deliver their soliloquy and then turning back. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, what are you writing next? Are um, you allowed to talk about it? <laughs> yes, um, I'm on quite a tight deadline with my second book. Uh, it's partly set in France and it's also got, it's not the same characters, it's not a sequel, um, but it's a fairly similar cast of characters in that involves um, journalists and people in the more political world. And it's really telling the story of two friends, one of whom is a, a failed, burned out journalist who's gone off to live in France and his former colleague who has now become a much more successful PR um, lobbyist. Uh, and has bought a much bigger and much better house in the same area. Uh, and so the two are, they're sort of having, both having midlife crises of various sorts and judging each other on their relative success. Uh, and it's when uh, the PR chap has a bike accident and goes missing, uh, we suddenly discover that his seemingly perfect life is actually much more complicated than we at first thought. Sounds suspenseful. Would you would you so. classify it as a as a thriller? That's another good question. Uh, I don't think it's a conventional thriller. It's not. Neither of them are thrillers full of car chases and bombs going off and you know people being shot. Uh, I don't know what, whether you call it sort of. It's sort of a political thriller, but again, not as you convention. It's not quite like a House of Cards where there's mm. all sorts of terrible, dastardly things going on. But I'm, I'm not quite sure there is a phrase for it or a, a genre for it but yeah of some emotion emotional political suspense <laughs> political psychological thriller i'm not yeah. sure if that's a thing um and my my, well, my last question was just going to be um i really really loved the character of um mark lucas's father and i would love to read the story of his life in stasi germany before you know stasi run east germany before things would you ever consider writing that story well thank you it's actually quite a few people I, i've never had planned to do that but quite a few people after reading the book have said to me that they would like uh to hear that and when i went back to berlin after i'd finished my first draft of the book i went to a museum where they talk about the people who had escaped from the former east germany and there were so many fascinating stories there that i thought well and it's not something we know as well from the Le Carre thrillers and other things set at that time. Um, so perhaps, I don't know. When you write it, I think you're going to have to thank Octavia. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> don't actually do that. <laughs> Terry, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Um, the novel's called Acts of Omission, and the paperback is coming out tomorrow when we are recording this, which will have been a couple weeks ago when the show goes out. So um, everyone... Hopefully we'll have voted by that time. And, um, and this is great insight into the political systems of Britain, among many other things. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about politics and literature. So Frederick Jameson, who I first met in my university career and haven't really thought about since but I'm thinking about again now um <laughs> it's a Marxist scholar and he argues in his seminal work the political unconscious that literature is inseparable from the political basically that all books reflect their political context which I kind of buy yeah but I think you know 
that would um, mean that we have to discuss every book ever written. So let's <laughs> leave that to the side for now um, and talk about novels um, that are overtly about politics, either in message or in subject. Now, I think there's an important to distinction to make here between novels that are about politicians and places where political decisions are made, sort of, um, you know, set in Whitehall or mm. um, Washington, D.C. or, you know, a town council something like that um but there's also novels that are making a political point something like animal farm or the grapes of wrath um so let's talk about the former first what do you think makes a good novel about politicians it's a good question um i think i realized when preparing for the show that there aren't that many novels about politicians that i've actually read um lots of novels that are discussing politics and and like you said the distinction is important to make um and when i was thinking about novels with politicians as figures and characters in them they were all uh kind of spy thriller genre type you know jean le carré and eric ambler and that kind of thing um and i think it's partly because a good novel about politicians you you have to create a, a very um, in-depth structure, right? You have to create build a political structure from the ground up in a in a novelistic sort of uh, world. Um, and would it mirror the? Would it be a realist novel? Would it not? Like we spend enough time dealing with politicians on our television screens in our real lives. Do we really want to escape into that fantasy world? Yeah, well, I have a confession to make too, which doesn't exactly show that we are experts on this topic, but I haven't read that many novels with politicians in them, except for the excellent acts of omission, of course. But right. I think it's partially because I am not that interested yeah. in politicians. I'm interested in politics. Yeah. I follow politics. I think most people do. But I maybe it's this modern perception of what a politician is and um terry was saying in her interview that people were shocked when she said she wanted to make a good politician that she wanted to make them a rounded interesting person yeah and i think it's partially because we have this perception as politicians as sort of emptied out people who have made too many sacrifices to reach the power that they have and not in a sort of interesting way like when you think about kings of old or other sort of really powerful people tyrants or anything mm. like that um more people who uh, d there's something missing there and yeah. i think you know house of cards comes to mind which of course is a tv series now but was also a book um and that's another element of that where he's just a sort of scheming manipulator and there's fun in that but it's not he's not really a rounded character no exactly well and i was thinking you know wolf hall is obviously all about politicians i haven't read it <laughs> I, I haven't been interested in it um really at all but books that are political in their aim you know animal farm is an extraordinary book george orwell and um war and peace is one of my favorite novels and so books that deal with politics, but the point with those is that they deal with politics on a, on a personal level, and that's what makes them interesting to me. Um, rather than, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's something in the, the dogma required to be a politician. You have to sign up to one point of view. You have to sign up to one side of looking at things. And really, that's not what is going to make a dynamic and interesting character. So if you're writing about politicians, either... It's kind of, they become these satirical hate figures who we can love to hate. And, you know, you're, that can be the conflict in the novel is that there's this figure that is, you know, embodies all these negative things and your characters can fight 
or yes you set yourself the very difficult challenge like Terry did of writing a, a human a humanizing a politician um, and in order to humanize a politician do they have to fail I think that's partly the question isn't it can you have a politician a character that is a polit politician who succeeds in their ideology and is human well mm. it doesn't make for a great narrative does it no exactly okay well i hope we can be proven wrong on this so if you can think of any great novels about human politicians please uh <laughs> tweet us <laughs> or <laughs> comment on our facebook page let's talk about novels about politics in general which is this other strand which i think um most people will be able to name many many novels that are making a political point the novel um has been a space for making political points for ever since its conception, really. Um, you could argue that the first novels were in part about morality, which isn't quite politics, but um, they're at least trying to get a message across. Yeah, and values, core values, which yeah. is all politics. So what do we think the most successful novels that do this with politics are? I personally think that it, it's what you were saying before, that they have to show the, the human side of the sweep of history. So the novel that instantly came to mind for me was The Grapes of Wrath, mm. which has a very clear political point, and it's inescapable, really. Um, but it's, it, you're, it's never said outright in the novel, um, oh, look at these poor people um, being migrant farmers, having a terrible life we should really fix our system because people are suffering in it. Instead, you're, you're living their lives with them and, and there's you know, a very compelling narrative that makes you follow the book along and read it. And you're sort of um, not tricked because I think that is uh, giving the writer too much credit and the reader too little. But um, I think the best novels sort of sneak in a political point without you even really noticing it. Right, Well, and the, the role of the novelist in my mind anyway is not to be dogmatic but is to cut a window onto a, a reality and allow that reality to do the talking you know so like the grapes of wrath very much does that it, the choice to to demon to, to write about that particular way of life and that particular experience of life is political because it's bringing that to the fore and actually a good writer doesn't need to make the point because just the development of the story allows that to happen. I mean, I mentioned War and Peace before, I wanna go into it a bit more because it's one of my favorite books. And I read it at a time in my life, you know, as a 17 year old girl when I was very anti-politics. And if you told me it was a political novel, I would have been really angry with you um, because <laughs> I read it, you know, as this kind of great sweeping narrative, love story, human, family, whatever. And it's intensely political and um, you know, it, it's it's epic. It ta tackles this enormous swathe of history, um, and it makes you know the French invasion of Russia and the impact of the Napoleonic era on Tsarist society accessible because we get in in a very personal way into the lives of five different aristocratic families, and it descends into philosophical discussion. It becomes very abstract, really, from what a novel is supposed to do. And actually, Tolstoy um, doesn't, he didn't really think of it as a novel. He always said that Anna Karenina was his first true novel because War and Peace was, was more of a treatise in some ways. Mm. Um, but it, 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 it's doing a very similar thing. It, it's choosing to cut a, a, a slice out of history and, and you know, present it in a certain way. And in, in so doing, you know, it's, uh, and I remember we talked about this with, with Jesse Armstrong, so I'm repeating myself slightly, but the personal is political, and that's, that's how to engage people 
with political ideologies and ideas is to make it personal to them, which means bringing it into a very human space. Yeah. But I, I, I want to go back to your use of the word dogmatic because I think that's interesting that you don't think it's the novelist's job to be dogmatic. I think it probably is the politician's job to be dogmatic. Right. And it brings up the question is how effective is a novel really in making any sort of political change is if you have to acknowledge the inconsistencies and humanity of everyday life. I mean, reality doesn't lend itself that well to strong political points. No, and I, I also think that the, the trouble with it, with the novel as um, a political tool is that there's the element of choice. You can't force somebody to pick up a novel. You can't force somebody to, to listen to, to you as a, as a, a novelist. Um, and I, I, I agree, I think, there is no space for yeah. There's no space for dogma in the novelist's yeah. bag of tricks. And I would say a lot of really famous, popular novels, uh, for me, fail in some ways when they start getting too dogmatic. So, I agree. Um, you know, I'm going to talk about *The Jungle* later um, by Upton Sinclair, which. I think is a brilliant novel, but at the end, um, the character sort of discovers socialism. And, and, and <laughs> I, I also read this in high school when I was deeply sort of uh, suspicious of politics and socialism in general as somebody growing up in America, which I am very um, uh, embarrassed to admit on the radio, <laughs> but it's, it's true, so whatever, let's just put it out there. But I also would say it's boring yeah it's boring it's fucking boring he just talks about socialism goes to socialist <laughs> meetings tells people some more about socialism lots of people talk about how great it is to be socialist and it's not interesting mm. and, it, and well, you know why is because the thing at the heart of a good story is conflict and there's no conflict if you're just being pummeled with an agenda whereas you know you look at uh, let's go back to Animal Farm the whole point is Orwell is staging you know Orwell has an agenda in writing that book but he's staging um, a discussion by showing you both sides and you know there's a, an enormous amount of conflict similarly in 1984 you know that is a that's a book that has a serious agenda um, but it's not dogmatic you know it's it's choosing to take a smaller a smaller um, symbolic element of the whole mechanism and push that point so that it causes you to then reflect on your own system and that's where th I think there is a really um, interesting role for fantasy to play in political narratives in novels um, Margaret Atwood is another great writer who who writes in a very political way in fantasy The Handmaid's Tale is an extraordinary book Oryx and Crake as well you know staging these kind of taking ideology and staging it in a in a sideways world and then you, you you disappear into these fantasy narratives and when you come out the other side you reflect back on your own reality and that is the power of the novel that's the power of, of creativity yeah and you could argue that many of the the best political novels are set in as you say fantasy worlds but also um the future mm. i mean most sci-fi novels are political absolutely because they're they're a reflection of our society but in uh, it's sort of a projection of what something could become as a result of yeah. X or Y, yeah. which is a political comment on how we live now. Yeah, and actually just to go back to the difference between tho that kind of writing and novels that are about the political machine, you know, I was thinking about the James Bond series and, and going back to the idea of Le Carre and Ambler, and that those books are so different. Those books are all about 
like the fetish of um, the establishment and how you negotiate that and the figure of the spy who is, you know, this interesting shady figure who is breaking lots of rules always in those books because that's what makes them interesting and yet upholds the establishment. I mean, you don't get much more establishment than James Bond um, as, a ca as a figure. Yeah. There was a great article, I think by Elizabeth Day in The Guardian. I mean, it wasn't a great article, but it made me think about James Bond where she was saying, all of these people are campaigning to have the black James Bond and a female James Bond. And she was saying, James Bond is something of the past. He can't be changed. And part of the pleasure is that he is a part of the establishment. And changing him with the times is not the way to go. Why don't we make our own heroes that say something different about the values we hold? Yes, Rather God. than try to morph James Bond, who is totally traditional a in dinosaur. every sense of the He's word a dinosaur into something else but anyway let's talk about <laughs> our favorite um political novels do you want to go first yeah sure so uh, i'm going to talk about i mean i wanted to talk about war and peace because i always want to talk about war and peace but i have done that already so i'm going to talk about the quiet american by graham green which is an extraordinary book um and it's one that draws on Green's journalistic experience in a big way. He was a war correspondent for The Times and Le Figaro in um, the French colonies in Southeast Asia. And it was published for the first time in 1955, set in Vietnam. Um, and it's, it's amazing when you pick up novels by the great writers like Green. You're in such safe hands. It's exquisitely plotted, his command of language. Graham Greene is one of my favorite novelists. Yeah, he's a really a really remarkable writer and a real jobbing writer. You know, he, he was extraordinarily prolific. He, he wasn't precious about his craft. He believed that, you know, as a writer, you have to write, <laughs> um, which seems very simplistic now, but you know, it's a di it was a different time, I think, for, for that kind of a engagement with, with the job. Anyway, um, it's a really exquisitely plotted book. It's full of very vivid details about Vietnam and um, it has a very political agenda. It's overtly anti-war um, and it stages this kind of slightly complicated interaction between America and Britain. Um, and it was not a very popular book in America because the American doesn't come out of it that well. Um, but I think it's still very relevant. So the central device is the love triangle between Thomas Fowler, who's the cynical Brit, um, journalist in his 50s, who is a you know, hard-drinking character, and then Alden Pyle, who is the quiet American of the title, who's an idealistic undercover CIA agent, and then Fuang, who's a 20-year-old local girl who Fowler is in a relationship with, in spite of the fact he's married and has a wife back in England. Um, but really, it's a story where personal desires and motivations get linked with much broader political ideologies and acts. Um, and the thing that's wonderful about it and the thing that Green is so excellent at doing is none of his characters are good, none of his characters are evil. They are all grey matter, grey area mess. Um, and he he had this very deep understanding of how murky the human condition is and he doesn't judge his characters which means that we're not allowed to either um so no one gets to pass final judgment on any of them um and you don't get to have that sat self-satisfied well you were a bastard anyway when you finished the book you know you dickhead over there you're left with this feeling of fuck you know like what do what do we do we're all so messy we, we all have our own agendas going on all the time um but i think it's the way that the book cautions against dogmatic idealism makes it incredibly relevant still. 
Um, and I, I think everybody should read it. Also, the film is exquisite. Maybe the best political point a novel can make is not to be dogmatic. Right. Oh, very good, Karen. Oh. <laughs> Um, but yes, it's a wonderful book, and I completely agree with everything you've just said there. Thank goodness. So my recommendation is The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which I talked about a bit to criticize for being boring. So <laughs> let me try to um, <laughs> revive its uh, re <laughs> reputation on this show right now. Doing great. Um, so it's, it's Upton Sinclair's seminal novel um, based upon his observations as an investigative journalist. Um, and the main character is a Lithuanian immigrant called Jurgis. Um, and it's really about the horrible conditions he endures in the meatpacking industry in Chicago in the early 20th century. It was a bestseller in America, and it really opened people's eyes to what was going on um, in sort of the industry that had sprung up very quickly in America and was sort of dominating the scene and run largely by immigrants. Um, uh, you know, the people who were coming into the country and getting thrown into these situations um, with very little safety and um, living really terrible lives. One of the funny things about it is that the real political change it made was the creation of the Food and Drug Administration, which was about safety standards for food and not for people, which I don't know if that was necessarily really his point. Um, and I didn't love this novel when I read it. We had to read it for summer reading before AP US history junior in high school. And I remember thinking that, you know, it was, it was quite shocking and gross um, to read about the conditions in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. Um, it felt like a bit of a slog, especially at the very end when the main character turns to socialism, which I've already talked about. Um, but I don't know. I think about this book all the time. Uh, it's um. come back to me so often. And I think it's because it's not only a wonderful document of American history, um, but it, it really slams home a political point in a way that I think most novels don't succeed in doing. And it's partially because it is a little dogmatic, but in a way that is totally effective. It has a, it has a wonderful narrative while still um, leaving you seething at the injustice in the world. And I think that is so powerful that Upton Sinclair was able to do that. And I'm, I'm really glad that it exists. Mm. And I think it's still totally prescient today um, especially in the UK with so much fear-mongering about immigration when, gotcha. when the main character is, is this very human, very downtrodden um, immigrant figure. So I'd recommend it. Great. Okay, let's uh, do our book recommendations now. Octavia, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I'm recommending The Penguin, Dorothy Parker which um, I have to admit I stole from my parents <laughs> um, when I was visiting recently because it had such a fabulous cover, um, which is a, a, a drawing of Dorothy Parker herself from the 20s with the kind of classic bob and smoking a cigarette, and it really grabbed my attention. Um, and she's obviously a big literary name who I'd heard of a lot and had kind of picked up snippets of her kind of wit and witticisms and, and never actually paid that much attention to, and I'm loving it. Um, it's a collection of, of all of her writing, so short stories, articles, poetry as well. Um, and I've been dipping in and out of it and getting a real sense of her in a very three-dimensional way because her short stories are very acerbic and witty and funny and mean, very, very <laughs> mean about 
humanity, um, describing their kind of sassy vignettes of 1920s and 30s New York society and girls who want to buy pearls and stoles and boys and girls in relationships and all of this stuff. There's one called The Sexes, which is an incredibly um, damning exercise in passive aggression between a boyfriend and a girlfriend, basically <laughs> manipulation and all of that. Um, but then her poetry, uh, suicide is a really big theme and you really get the sense of this woman who has this very difficult experience of living and it's what gives her her outlook and her very um, cutting way of kind of observing humanity but it comes from a place of quite deep bitterness and, and sadness which, which is which is very tragic, but she did die of old age in the end. So she, you know, she kept on plugging away. Um, and her articles she wrote for Vanity Fair and Vogue, and her short stories were in the New Yorker. Um, and she actually was one of the people who set up the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League in 1936. So a really, really interesting figure. Um, and I, I'm going to keep going with it. I, I mean, I've been dipping in and out. I want to read more as I go. So I would recommend it very, very heartily. Oh, thank you. I have a confession to make, which I is I have never read anything by Dorothy Parker. I've read some quotes once in a while about drinking, but I feel those probably don't represent her as an author. Thank you, Octavia. Um, so last month I recommended an essay, and I'm going to continue in that vein uh, with short things, mainly because I haven't read that many novels lately, uh, and recommend a short story this month. But I really do recommend the short story. It's um, by an author I hadn't heard of before. His name's Thomas Pierce. Um, who has published one collection of short stories with Penguin in the US. I don't think he's even been published in the UK. Um, and it's called This is an Alert. Um, I came to it in a recent issue of The New Yorker, which was out on uh, the 30th of March. But the premise is that there's a family on the way to lunch with the in-laws um, in a very sort of normal way, sitting in a car. But they keep getting interrupted by this voice seemingly coming from on high, telling them that it's an alert, and they all have to put on gas masks and get on their hands and knees. Um, and what I love about this story, um, Eudora Welty has a great quote um, about short stories in which she says, a short story is confined to one mood to which everything in the story pertains. Characters, setting, time, events are all subject to the mood. And I don't know if I always agree with that, but I think this is a great example of a story which is so strongly in one mood and from the very first sentence, you're just transported to the mood and the, and the world. I also love the way that it's this wonderful marriage of totally mundane things and really fantastical sort of scary science fiction elements. So the family are just trying to get along with their life and they're quite annoyed by these alerts, even though they, they seem to be important of uh, the possibility of the robots at war in the sky dropping you know, nuclear bombs or whatever, um, but they're just trying to eat their rib and can't do it because they have a gas mask on their face. So it's funny, but in that totally chilling way that I think all the best science fiction is. So it really, um, it, it stuck with me for a long time after I read it. And um, I think it's available online. So I think everyone should read it. Terry, what's your recommendation? My recommendation, um, which, like Octavia, is a, a book I felt I should have read a long time ago, and it's The French Lieutenant's Woman by John Fowles. And 
the reason I read it, which is probably the reason lots of people read it, is that I went to Lyme Regis, where the book is set on holiday, and I thought, how come I've never read this book? I really, really ought to. Uh, and I picked it up more at it, you know, slightly out of a, a sense of duty. And of course, everybody knows the film, and everybody knows the image of the French lieutenant's woman standing there in her hood on the cob at Lyme Regis in the sea splashing over and I think I'd always thought oh it's just you know it's a historical romance and you know great for a holiday but what I hadn't realized and I probably should have realized because the film is quite sort of tricksy and clever is that there's actually quite a lot of tricky authorial kind of jumping out of the book and as I was working on the draft of my uh, second novel at the time that this bit particularly stuck with me where the the authorial voice says you may, th may think novelists always have fixed plans to which they work, so that the future predicted by chapter one is always inexorably the actuality of chapter 13. But novelists write for countless different reasons, for money, for fame, for reviewers, for parents, for friends, for loved ones, and it carries on like this, and it says, only one same reason is shared by all of us. We wish to create worlds as real as, but other than the world that is. And so you get these sort of sudden jumps like this, but also it's got fascinating ideas about it because um, the main character, um, one of the main characters is a fossil hunter who goes to Lyme Regis to look for fossils at a time when evolution is still a kind of contested argument at the time when Darwin is writing. So there's all sorts of ideas in it about uh, science and evolution, which although this book is, I guess, sort of 45 years old or so, actually still feel quite up to date. And, and ideas about uh, the role of women and what women are supposed to do and how they should behave and all that. But it has got a fantastic cracking plot that sort of drives you on and you do want to know what happens. You've 100% sold it to me, like 100%. <laughs> do you think you've read it differently as a novelist? Because that quote seemed to pertain particularly to novels. Yes, definitely. I mean, the, one of the other books, I was toying between this and another one, which is a Pr Patricia Highsmith novel that's just been released. And I always say to myself, oh, I don't like books just about authors, because that's just when someone hasn't got any other ideas. But actually, it was, it was great fun, and it did kind of speak to me. Because I find I am got much more critical in my reading since I became a writer. I used to be able to completely lose myself in a book and get to the end and have been in that world. And now I start picking things apart, which I don't really like doing. I prefer just being absorbed in the story. Toni Morrison, I think, always talked about reading as a writer and how it completely changes the way that you look at books. I wouldn't know, but you do. <laughs> so thank you very much. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Terry Stiasny. If you're looking for a suspenseful and searching political novel, pick up her debut, Acts of Omission, which is in paperback now. We'll be back next month to celebrate summer on the 16th of June for a show about the British coast with author Patrick Barkham. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction on NTS. <laughs>